0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
2: I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie.
0: And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know.
1: Mom, I just want an Oscar.
0: I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. And later on the show, you're going to hear Rebecca and I talk to Karina Longworth, the host of You Must Remember This. Uh, Her episode this week is about Thelma and Louise, so she came on to talk to me and Rebecca about... That movie's cultural impact and lack of cultural impact. Um, and Rebecca, as you said while we were talking, it was only appropriate that it was just the women talking about Thelma and Louise, and we <laughs> unintentionally kicked off Richard and David. So <laughs> um, a good conversation coming there. Um, Though we've got some news to talk about in the meantime from both Emmy season and um, from Can coming up in a few short weeks. Um, but I wanted to start by letting David and Rebecca plug some first looks that we ran today. Um, and Rebecca, I'll start with you with All the Light We Cannot See, which is the furthest away of uh, anything we We've done a first look for in a long time. It's not out till the fall. But this is such a big adaptation of a really beloved book um, and uh, looks pretty good. And you talked to Sean Levy about it.
2: Yes, we're talking about something that's coming out in November. But, you know, we like to be early over here at Vanity Fair. So, yeah, um, obviously, this book uh, was so beloved and so popular and you know, when I heard it was being adapted, I was like, how are they going to possibly do that? And the answer is you make it a four-part miniseries because that gives you enough time. So Sean Levy produced and directed all four episodes. And he, you know, told me when he first read the book, the rights were already acquired and they were trying, whoever had acquired it was trying to make it into a film. Um, But he soon learned that they kind of couldn't crack it in that format and was able to get the rights and make it into this four-part miniseries. But I think one of the most interesting things about it is obviously this main character is blind, um, and he uh, specifically looked for um, blind or visually impaired actors to play the role and and found this actress who is this total discovery, uh, who's never acted before, who was a PhD student at Penn and sent in a um, self-tape, and the way that really helped shape how they capture the character.
0: Sometimes our energy levels for World War II stories can wax and wane, but um, I read this book a few years ago, and I'm and maybe I'm always a sucker for World War II stories, but such a like a special, unique take on this period of time that feels so familiar, and, and I'm interested in like Netflix with its immense power to draw on audiences, um, what it can do to kind of bring people to the story.
2: Yeah, it definitely looks big and cinematic and sweeping, and I got to see a few of the episodes on a, a big screen at Netflix, which really allowed that to sink in about how they shot the, the series. So um, I, I think people will tune in when November gets here. <laughs> <laughs> it feels kind of like the, um,
0: I don't know when The Crown is back, but I think of The Crown and November is going together, like big Netflix <laughs> historical series. So um, I can see that being an apt time for the show. Um well David on the complete opposite side of the TV spectrum really um from long-gestating limited series but you had a first look on, on the season season 3 of Couple Therapy coming to Showtime?
1: Season 3B. Oh, oh, excuse me. <laughs> um
0: you're you've been like really beating the drum for the show for a long time and I think reading your piece I kind of understood why for the first time.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really fantastic show. And one thing you said, Katie, when I found the story was it's it's a really fascinating and unusual entrant in our current reality landscape, which I think is partly why it appeals to me so much. Um, It's a really realistic and intense portrait of couples therapy. And they have a really kind of Compelling protagonist uh, in its central therapist, uh, Dr. Orna Goralnik, who is a practicing psychotherapist and psychoanalyst in um, New York City. The show casts its net from over 400 couples they see to audition. The final seasons end up with three to four each. It's not paid for, so you get a more diverse group of people, uh, and they really focus on having a balance of queer couples, couples with, you know, non-traditional dynamics um, and kind of hitting... It hits where couples are right now and it, it as it's gone on longer, it's really traced how, you know, notions of love and coupledom have evolved just in the last five years.
0: Does it make you wonder why anyone would sign themselves up? I mean, I guess people go on reality TV for all kinds of reasons, but reading your piece, I was like, why would anyone ever open themselves up in this way on television? I think...
1: The show has a unique answer in that this therapist, Dr. Orna, is incredibly good at what she does, and what she provides these couples is, you know, from the vantage point of a viewer, incredibly valuable. So, if I were offered that free therapy, I guess I would probably say yes. (laughs) I I don't know. It's it's it's. I'm a pretty private person, so I probably wouldn't. But I can understand why many people would. And you have. It sounds ridiculous but you have real people um and in an era where so many people are on reality tv to be famous to varying extents and that can be very entertaining to watch this is the love is blind moment as we all know um it's refreshing to see people just having a show that exists for people to actually work out issues and and see what kind of impact that can have for people watching this season Um, has a really fascinating queer couple that comes in sits on the couch and within the first two minutes tells the therapist that they have to start embracing polyamory or they're going to break up and so the entire season is this unpacking of why that ultimatum came down what kind of external forces are going on both culturally and in their lives and it's it's really powerful to watch at least for me
0: it sounds like for someone who is nosy and always wants to know what's going on with other people's business, this is maybe exactly the show
1: for me also, it's so good if you're nosy. I mean, you cannot do better. <laughs> it's like, and I think you I think if you are in a couple, you can relate to every couple in one way or another. and they're yeah. very different.
0: Well, David, you brought up Love is Blind, and I actually was thinking of couples therapy as like the opposite end of the reality TV spectrum from it. And um, they had this kind of fiasco on Sunday night with the live finale. Rebecca, you were there. Um, I guess had you watched the succession screener already, so you didn't have to stack them up both. Uh, It seemed like a very high stakes situation.
2: Uh, Well, this was on earlier, I believe. But then it got delayed. Well, yeah, I didn't end up watching it till the next day. So my <laughs> evening was cleared very quickly. But yeah, this was supposed to come on at 5 p.m. Pacific. Um, so, you know, I logged on and and then it just froze. Like it was just a screen that said Love is Blind. So it was a pretty anticlimactic uh, event because, you know, these live events are new for Netflix. And I think this one, it's such a smart uh, use of that tool because people love the series. I love the series and I was ready to see the mess. But I ended up watching it. Like they just recorded it and I watched it the next day. So you miss out on that sort of moment they could have had and the social media reaction to people sort of watching it live, which I think is, you know, why people used to love live television. So, yeah, um, yeah, it was it was quite a disappointing experience. Still (laughs) still a nice, messy reunion, but, you know, (laughs) but
0: but messy in ways that were not uh, intended. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, it made me think about the SAG Awards being on Netflix's YouTube channel, which we were all kind of baffled by when they did it this year. But I guess it it proves that the live Netflix technology is a lot more complicated than other television, which we've had live for over 50 years. I don't know the mechanics of it, but clearly they need some time before they're going to have the SAG Awards on that platform.
2: Yeah, I think it's good they've got some time because they need to work this all out before doing something like that. So I assume we're going to see a couple more of these sort of live attempts and hopefully they go smoother.
1: It's more appropriate for a Love Is Blind reunion to go down in flames than yeah. <laughs> like an awards show. So, the right guinea pig.
0: I feel glad for uh, if Netflix is going to be the dominant uh, force, and uh, you know, we were learning today that the Snowman, the misbegotten Michael Fassbender movie, is number one on the platform. They they are driving eyeballs in ways we cannot understand. Um, but their investment in live programming, I think, is a good thing in general. I would like for them to work it out because having live events on Netflix seems worth it in the end.
3: Yep. Are you saying they're not going to do a live Snowman?
0: Uh, well, <laughs> Richard, we were talking, we were reminiscing on you trying to review the Snowman back in the day, and uh, thinking you might be the host of the live Snowman production on Netflix because of how much you love that movie.
3: Yeah, the event's going to be called Harry Hole Live, um, which <laughs> apparently has caused some consternation in the marketing department. I don't know, understand why, but um, yeah, we'll see.
0: The the censorship board is really going nuts. We'll figure it out.
3: The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash littlegoldmen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H E L P.com slash littlegoldmen.
0: Well, actually, speaking of Netflix, we were going to um, go back to a topic from last week. I had to uh, add in a little bit of a disclaimer last week as we discussed the limited series categories before we saw the news that Beef, the Netflix series, is moving into limited series and out of comedy, which David and Rebecca, I believe like we had been told that it was comedy. It wasn't just an assumption on yeah. our part. Like that was the plan. And then they shifted. And I think we can probably imagine why, because of what we talked about last week and how the, ca- the competition was less stiff than it had been in other years. But how weird of a change-up is this for, for Emmy season and for this point in Emmy season?
1: Um, I think it depends on whether the show is renewed. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the creator has spoken about having a three-season plan for the show um, with these characters, which would make it not a limited series. And as we saw with The White Lotus, you can have an entirely new storyline and setting, and even if one character comes back, it's not limited. I agree with that kind of designating, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's you're, you're a carryover. You are telling a continuing story in some way. So it's hard to tell whether this is purely strategic, because comedy is pretty stacked with frontrunners this year, um, or if there was maybe a change in the way that they see the series either continuing or not. Um, I think it kind of depends on that. I, I I hope that this is not a naked Emmy ploy. Um, that said, I am a big fan of the show, and I am happy to see it in the place where I think it can have the most success. So, um, Even if it I'm makes
0: sh- the least sense?
1: Well, I, I just don't know if we know. I mean, I think that the season... You know, they, they run through a lot in this season. It, it really ratchets it up by the end. And, you know, how much gas is left in that particular telling, I, I don't even know. So it could have been a result of ongoing conversations about the creative of the show. It's just hard to tell.
3: This wouldn't be some sort of dire indication that, like, it just wasn't watched, right? And Netflix is like, eh, never mind, we're going to do... a
0: success, isn't it? Like, I mean, our number, our, it's all anecdotal, right? But
3: I mean, I, I think so, but then again, I'm like, you know hbo puts out a press release succession was watched by 2.3 million people and it's like according to my twitter feed it was watched by 3 billion people so like <laughs> i right. think that my perception of what's actually being watched uh, the snowman versus beef um might be very skewed so i hope it's not that i mean it probably isn't but
2: it's definitely been like on their number 1 or number 2 on their you know top watch shows on their on Netflix. So I feel like people are watching it but you're right Richard we don't know because there are no numbers other than self reported so it's it's hard to know. Yeah.
0: If it is a naked Emmy ploy, are we bothered by this? I I think that as Oscar like fanatics, we tend to get very pedantic about, like, what is adapted? And, the, and with Emmys, the lines have always been fuzzier. And I'm trying to decide if I care about something, like, competing in a weird category. Does anyone feel like this is, you know, objectively good or bad for how these Emmys works?
3: Well, we were joking last week about, like, oh, the, you know, the TV movie could come back and we could have a little Junior Oscars, you know, whatever. And I think that's what this affects. If we're going to see, like, streaming films be considered, you know, in the Emmys in a way they really haven't before, you know, we were saying, like, Boston Strangler's eligible, and those are going to get lumped in with limited series. And so if actual continuing, you know, running series are cheating and, you know, kind of edging out or elbowing out um, a a kind of lost form that seems to be rebounding in the TV movie, um, that would be kind of frustrating, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's
1: interesting because they also have a very clear limited series contender in Dahmer, where that's not really up for debate, you know, where it would go. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's, you know, the situation of Beef, regardless of what its future is, is very different from that of a Dahmer or a Fleischman is in trouble or a George and Tammy, which are very closed ended productions. But this has come up every year with Limited. I mean, I remember Mayor of Easttown, while the se- while it was getting all these nominations and then wins, there were all these conversations about whether or not it would have a second season with Kate Winslet coming oh, back. And yeah. so, you know, it's, it's kind of dumb <laughs> because at the end of the day, when a show is successful enough, we've talked about Perry Mason, that was ordered as a Limited series. Then it was a hit that first season. So it came back. I mean, it's driven by success. And I don't know what... The marker for success is for beef in terms of like what it would then become, like I don't know if it's a huge hit, does that mean it's something else? I just don't really know what the thinking is there, but this happens every year with limited series quote unquote um, that then become regular series, also like big little lies. It happens all the time.
0: yeah is the idea with Dahmer that like Stephen Young can't beat? Evan Peters uh, coming from Netflix, but like Ali Wong has a path in actress, I would think. Like they're kind of like placing their chips in different categories here.
1: I think so. I mean, I I I, I also just think it would get more nominations. Yeah, it's a beef it's wide. a yeah. I think it's it's there haven't been that many like buzzy buzzy limited series versus comedies. I mean, again, comedies and quotes because we're talking about stuff like Barry and the Bear. <laughs> yeah, but um, which I think beef. Does rival them in terms of laughs. But anyway, I think that they have a very good shot to get a lot of nominations. And depending on how well the buzz holds up, can maybe yeah win a few areas. I think actress will be tough, if only for the Jessica Chastain factor. Well, can, she's uh, undefeated at all times. Undefeated.
0: Um, if you guys are okay with getting spoiler for a second... How do we feel about there being another season of this show? Like, I found it very sh- good, but very stressful. And I liked where it ended. And I have a really hard time imagining what a second season of this would look like.
2: It's so funny because I saw this, you know, so early that I just assumed it was a limited series because we hadn't talked to any of mm-hmm. the, the reps or awards insiders about where it was going. And and I was like, oh, yeah, it's very clearly a, a limited series or yeah. wraps up. Like, where would they possibly go? But... Um so when we first met with some people from Netflix, I was like, oh, yeah, it's a limited series, right? And they were like, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> but actually, I, yeah. I feel like the world has been righted in my mind because that's what I thought it was going to be. But, you know, if if the creator is saying he has two more seasons in mind, I feel like we have to believe him and he he knows where he's going. It is hard to imagine where they go after the way this show sort of wrapped everything up. but. I mean, what, they're going to keep doing mean things to each other? That doesn't <laughs> seem like the likely solution
3: here. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely want the show, if it has the ideas for it, to have the opportunity to do more, because I think it's earned that with the yeah, season. But sure. I wish creatively that the community, the Hollywood and, and viewers were comfortable with the sort of sad ambiguous way that this ends you know the season ends and um there is a an arc has closed in some ways like you know something has finished or been learned and yes there are strings you know in the wind but um like that could be you know tied up um in subsequent seasons but like i don't know when i when i finished the season which i really really liked i kind of not because I didn't want these people to continue to work together on this project, but I just sort of creatively was like, Oh, it'd be really interesting if this was just how it ended. And that's all we ever got.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: This also comes in a year where you have a couple shows in Barry and succession that are going out on their own terms. And both of those shows creators have really spoken about the decision to not necessarily ride the wave of success as long as they can ride it um, and find the right Place to finish their story, um, and I think this—I don't know whether B fits into that, but um, you know, it, I agree with Richard that it's a really interesting, uncomfortable place for the show to end. So if it does, it, it feels appropriate, and it's a nice change of pace from, I think, streaming bloat that we've experienced of late.
0: Can't we all look back and be, be so grateful they didn't do a second season of Mirror, East Town, which I would have watched, but I'm so mm-hmm. much happier with it being this concise thing, unlike a Big Little Lies second season. Would we be happier if it hadn't happened? could be probably
1: and I'm so happy that Kate Winslet appears to be in another really interesting new HBO limited series instead
0: yeah oh yeah I mean we again we recorded last week before all of the max <laughs> news dropped um yeah. and I don't honestly have a ton of insight to add on it because like I'm an HBO max subscriber I'm going to continue to be a max subscriber it sounds like um they had a bunch of promising stuff that seems very HBO-y like the the downplaying of HBO seems to be more corporate than actually practical uh, but I mean, were any were any of your fears allayed by that whole presentation they did last week?
3: I will say that branding wise, they're they're facing an uphill climb. In that, like, I had several media savvy friends in a text conversation, and I was as confused as they were. That was like, wait, so is HBO gone? But then, like, the trailers for the the Kate Winslet show and True Detective said HBO original, but then it would the trailers ended and said streaming on Max. And it was from the Max Twitter account, and it was yeah. just like so confusing. I know. Yeah. I think HBO is just going to be a vertical on the platform, obviously. But like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the shows look good because they're HBO shows. But yeah. But uh, the branding is is odd because how will it be spoken about? Like, if a mm-hmm. if it, if people most people are watching it on Max even at 9 p.m. on Sunday night because they're not tuning into HBO on their cable package. At the Emmys, let's say, is that a Max win? Is that an HBO win? Does it matter? Like, you know, I think it's just sort of tricky um, to sort out the branding. And I I just don't understand what the thought process, you know, by the people in charge is.
1: I'm giving it a wait and see. Um, Casey Blois has navigated many instances of bad press in terms of the amount of times that HBO has been sold and rebranded. There was a lot of bad press around HBO Max as that's revved up. Um, And he has... What he has always maintained is the quality of his programming. And based on those trailers, he seems to have been able to continue that, at least in the earliest days of WBD. Yeah. Um, but it sort of reminds me of where FX is right now. I mean,. That programming is now under the Hulu umbrella pretty thoroughly. I guess those shows still air on linear television, but I don't know anyone who watches them on linear television. Yeah. Um, And they had a, you know, on the one hand, they had a really good year with stuff like The Bear and Fleischman, which were, from what I could tell, pretty widely watched on Hulu. Um, But it is a different kind of identity. And FX was never as strong of a brand, obviously, as HBO as a kind of standalone Paid service, yeah, uh, subscription service. Um, but in that case too, John Landgraf has now assumed a larger creative content control um, in that Disney group, and Casey Bloy, similarly, who used to run HBO alone, is now overseeing both that and Max. And it's it will be interesting to see how both of those guys, who I think are two of the most respected, you know, TV executives in the business, and certainly for us, like people who have delivered the most creatively interesting shows over the last decade or so, how they will operate with so much more on their plate. And especially in the case of Max, because Hulu is still a fairly curated service, how you can even begin to sort through the sheer like breadth of content that is going to be coming in and that has to be organized in some way that is remotely um,
3: comprehensible to a viewer. Yeah. I'll say this as an example from within their own company. I'm a big Discovery Plus watcher for both home content and food content. um, And sometimes, you know, some TLC, um, MILF Manor content. Um, But I pretty... You (laughs) contain multitudes. So when I go into Discovery Plus, I pretty instinctively am like, okay, if I'm going to the food vertical that's food network for the most part maybe some cooking channel hdtv is home but then you have the magnolia thing the magnolia network is kind of folded into that my partner and I were watching a show last night, and we just couldn't tell if it was HGTV or Magnolia. And if it was Magnolia, we were going to be a lot more circumspect about the people's (laughs) politics who were on the show. Uh, And so uh, that was a little confusing. And I think so I think that like what Max would want to do with HBO, if they care, ultimately, that a casual subscriber of their platform, like, strongly identifies something as HBO is just keep that very distinct, you know, don't have it be like, You know, you go to TV series and it's just all their shows between Max shows and HBO shows and whatever else, like have a specific little portal for HBO um, if they care that much about distinguishing the brand. Because if that was the case, then it'll be fine because there are plenty of platforms I use where like I know exactly what network I'm going to, including on Hulu.
0: Well, I think that, like, the line between HBO and HBO Max was really hard to figure out. And I think that was part of the problem with HBO Max. But the line between HBO and Magnolia Network is not. Like, I think you're going to go on Max and it's going to be a bunch of stuff that is HBO and then all of that other stuff. Like, there's not, like, an in-between in there that I can think of in that huge umbrella of content. Mm -hmm. I
2: think Richard's right. You just kind of want to know where you are. Mm -hmm. Like, it it just feels like the more networks there are, the more I cannot figure out where the show is airing. Viewers just want to know know what to expect. And, I yeah, I think the way they design that interaction will be their sort of success or failure.
3: If only there was a way to kind of just turn your TV on, press a button, I don't know, guide or something, and then you can just <laughs> scroll through a list of, I don't know, channels.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that, is that mm-hmm. something they
3: could invent? Do yeah,
0: I, I think we can get there in another 10 or 15 years. <laughs> I think the Idol is going to be a really interesting test case because Max relaunches May 23rd or something like that. And then the Idol just put out a teaser. It's coming out early June. Um, That seems like the next big appointment viewing HBO show after Succession ends. Uh Um, And that, you know, will be on this new platform. I assume it will get a lot of eyeballs. Euphoria certainly does. It's very attention grabbing. Um, And I think that's kind of a smart way for them to put something that everyone's going to really want to watch on this platform that might seem scary otherwise.
1: Yeah.
0: We'll see. will see if I can watch The Idol. <laughs> I, I was, I,
1: Idol's such a big question mark for me. I just, I don't even know where to begin.
0: Well, actually, segues into our can conversation, because The Idol is premiering mm-hmm. at can. Uh, I see what some, you did there. <laughs> I kind of didn't mean to, but then there we are. Um some number of episodes of The Idol are premiering at Cannes, but uh, we'll see where that we get from there. There's a bunch of other stuff coming to Cannes. Richard and Rebecca, you guys will be there for us. Um, Richard kind of helped me cover the news of the lineup when it was announced last week. Um, I mean, so many things stand out from it. Do you want to pick anything to start with?
3: Well, I think we could start with The Idol itself, because um, it is perhaps a sign of the times that one of the most anticipated things, at least from an American perspective, at the festival is a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, there was a big Rolling Stone piece about the fraught production of The Idol and, you know, the showrunner getting kind of squeezed out by, was it Sam Levinson? Was it The Weeknd? Mm-hmm. You know, who whatever was happening behind the scenes. That's a good article. People should read it so people are just very curious about it obviously euphoria is such a cultural watershed kind of show in in its way and you know a few years ago more than a few i guess at this point um the second season of top of the lake the jane campion series screened in its entirety uh for press at the festival you could you could stay for the whole time you could leave after two or whatever however you wanted to do your day i don't think that they'll do that for the idol And I kind of wonder if they're going to give it the real, like, red carpet treatment, you know, and just play two episodes as if it's a movie. Um, So I'm definitely curious about that. And then, obviously, we we knew about the Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon. We knew about the Wes Anderson, Asteroid City. But the biggest confirmation by the schedule announcement, um, well, one of the biggest ones for me, anyway, was that Todd Haynes is going to have his film May-December there. Um, which I'm very excited about Todd Haynes is a can regular He had Carol there, he had Wonderstruck there uh, the, the Velvet Underground documentary most recently This is a return to fiction A return from, you know w- Wonderstruck was more for children And this is a full, formerly adult movie I think about um, a couple uh, Who are have big age gaps So it'll tap into that discourse uh, <laughs> And then an actor I can't wait I know, right? Um, I can't wait for, to see how the French handle that <laughs> <laughs> An actor played by Natalie Portman, uh, twenty years after this couple played by Julianne Moore and an actor from Riverdale uh, named Charles Melton, uh, she comes to to research them because she's playing Julianne Moore's character in a movie. Which, if that doesn't sound kind of sexy and risque and controversial and fun, I, I don't know what does. That, that sounds really <laughs> compelling. Um, I'm very curious to see, obviously, the chemistry between Julian Moore and Natalie Portman, but also to see what this Riverdale guy, Charles Melton, um, mm-hmm. how he does in this big, prestige, hotly anticipated can movie.
0: Rebecca, what are you going to be running to see?
2: Well, the Todd Haynes for sure, but I'm I there's I think it's a really great lineup. I'm really excited. I think they've got a good mix of sort of these crowd pleasing out of competition, but also a lot of filmmakers who are returning to Cannes um, that always get me um, really excited. I, I'm very excited to see the Hirokazu Koreeda film. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he was there with Broker. He won the Palm with Shoplifters, and he's back with this movie called Monster. There was a Japanese trailer released, which I tried to watch, but obviously could not understand what was happening. But from what I understand, it's sort of like a Rashomon-esque story with about like a boy and his parents and the teachers at school. And he seems like a sort of like a troubled um, student, but you know, he's obviously really good at telling these sort of family stories. Um, so I have high expectations about for that one, as I do every time he's at the festival. And then, you know, Asteroid City, I'm I'm excited for another Wes Anderson. <laughs> they sent me a list of like the talent that would be there. And it was like, 15 major names long. Um, <laughs> we'll have to wait and sort of <laughs> see who, you know, from what i from what I understand, the leads are Tom Hanks, Jason Schwartzman, and Scarlett Johansson. But, you know, th- I feel like he there's the opportunity for sort of those small breakout performances that I love from his films. So if it's great, I think it could be really exciting to see a, a great Wes Anderson film at the festival again. Tom Hanks back at Cannes just a year after Elvis. Mm. What can't he do?
3: Yeah, Maybe he'll wow. be doing a Dutch accent in this. The trailers don't indicate that, but... You never um, know. I, I think on the sort of... Equally whimsical, quirky side of things, uh, you know, kind of a nice compliment to Asteroid City is Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest, which is about <laughs> two Nazis falling in love at a concentration <laughs> camp, mm-hmm. and I think was filmed partially at Auschwitz, perhaps. Um, so that's going to be really potentially controversial. Um, obviously, Glazer uh, is a beloved sort of cultishly beloved filmmaker he made Under the Skin. That was his last movie 10 years ago. Um, Before that, he had Birth, which has had a nice kind of critical reassessment in recent years. And um, obviously there is a a sort of controversial element to that involving a bathtub. So we'll see what he he has to do. I mean, he's sort of an undeniably like must-see filmmaker, um, even though he's made so so few films. So I'm very excited about that one. Um, Although as ever, uh, I'm sort of dreading can controversy, which can be interesting, but also is never as fun as like Venice controversy about like Florence Pugh. You know, uh-huh. can controversy tends to be like Lars von Trier said he likes Hitler, or this yeah. movie is like deeply offensive to be yeah.
0: someone who's been accused of sexual
2: assault is yeah, somewhere. Yeah, can controversy is stressful. That's true. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah, can Kendrick- <laughs> it's just a lot darker, um, yeah. you know, than 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 the Venice stuff is.
0: I think this came out before the lineup happened, but we didn't really talk about the Johnny Depp movie that's opening um, night. It's out of competition. It's Jean du Barry. That's me practicing my French. I'm not going to Cannes. Um, I mean, this seems like something that is just so obviously like, oh, yes, Cannes would do that. No one else would. Is this going to be a big deal? Or is this gonna be one of those things that it opens it and we're like, okay, let's just move on?
3: Well, it's opening night. So it's not in competition. Opening night films at Cannes don't tend to shake the earth. There yeah. was, you know, the dead don't die. There was a Penelope Cruz, Javier Bardem movie from Oscar Farhadi that never really went anywhere. Um, so that's one indication that maybe this isn't such a big deal, but Cannes and, and its, you know, president Thierry Fermo uh, are are sort of touting this as like, well, it's a female director and Can has l- long had a problem uh, with, you know, in terms of that kind of gender parity in its lineup. I think there are six women in competition this year and he said there are more to be added probably from French filmmakers, but uh, to have the trade-off of it's, Oh, it's a female directed film to be like, and it stars Johnny Depp. It's just like, uh, again, it's, that's one of the most canned things I I can think of in recent memory. Well, and she's dealing with sexual assault allegations, correct? Yeah. Yeah. She herself is embroiled in controversy and has been for a long time. I believe, um, uh, so, yeah, it's it's great that a female filmmaker is opening can in theory, but, you know, in practice, I don't know that this movie is really going to do much but gain a lot of controversy in the way that the festival actually doesn't want. You know, maybe the film will be interesting and maybe it will be embraced by certain groups of critics, or maybe it'll play well with the French or someone else, you know, but... Um, I don't know, it doesn't give me much hope looking at just kind of all the people involved in the making of the film.
2: I'm curious how that press conference will go. If there is, <sighs> is there one? There is one for opening night film, right? I just, yeah, uh, I don't know. The canned press conferences are, are very uh, dysfunctional and, and about who gets to speak anyway. But, uh, you know, so if there is an opportunity to bring up some questions here, it feels like somebody's got to do it and it won't be probably the French press, so... We'll see how that goes.
1: All eyes on Rebecca Ford. (laughs) I think i get in
2: late that day. I'm not (laughs) sure.
1: Oh,
3: no. I'm there a day early. That means I have to go.
0: Congratulations, Richard.
3: My first ever press conference would be that. That's funny. (laughs)
0: I like that Terry Fermo already managed to cause controversy by saying kind of offhanded in an interview with Variety. Like, oh, Oppenheimer's coming out in the fall. It won't be ready in time. And there was a full day of Internet panic before Universal had to be like, no, it's it's still coming out. With yeah. All Christopher Nolan movies come out. Um, this is a good sign, a good start for Cannes controversy if we're already there.
3: yeah. Um, one Another major part of Cannes is when some sort of teen idol is in something. You know, like when Chalamet was there, people were screaming all the time. And, uh, you know, Justin Bieber, who didn't have a film at the festival, but he was staying at the Hotel Martinez. And so there was just a group of girls screaming. Um, This year, it might be a little smaller bore. I mean, maybe DiCaprio still has that to some extent. But uh, Jacob Elordi, speaking of Sam Levinson and Euphoria, has a movie in Director's Fortnight that was just announced Called the Sweet East. So directors Fortnite is pretty small. It's especially small this year because the the new people who run that sidebar have said they're really focusing on first time filmmakers, second time filmmakers, not just sort of picking bigger films that weren't part of the main competition. But you know, Jacob Jacob Lorty has a pretty rising star. um, so I'll have to make my way down the Quset and and see that one for sure and and you know, probably face a, at least a small pack of screaming fans.
0: That's all part of the experience, right?
3: Oh, yeah. And, you know, maybe that means he'll come to the party, which means maybe other Euphoria people will come to the party.
0: Well, I'll be watching from afar, um, as usual, but I-, I will be eager to see what um, Alice Warwacker, Ro- the director of Le Pupil, who is Italian and has a German sounding name. I don't know how to pronounce it. Apologies, but she has a movie called La Chimera. I've not seen her other movies. I only saw her really delightful short that was uh, Oscar nominated this year. But I will be very eager to see um, how that lands.
1: Me too, and it's got Josh O'Connor and Isabella Rossellini, so it's a it's a good cast. We like them. Um, and I'm also really excited for A Zone of Interest um, because it's got Sandra Hüller, who is in Tony Erdmann and is a great German actress.
0: Oh and- yeah. Well, Richard, in your write-up, you also flagged a movie um, called How to Have Sex by Molly Manning Walker. I think it's her first film. Um, But that's just a classic. Like, that'll get attention. People will be talking about it, whatever it it winds up being.
3: You know, we're always, uh, people on the ground, they're always looking for a good, sustainable running joke. And some (laughs) variation of, did you like sex? Did you learn how to have sex? You know, that we can just say throughout the week. I think that's important um, in in a place as unromantic and desexualized as can. We need to have something infused into that <laughs> environment.
0: This is the kind of inside baseball people come to us for. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I think we can probably expect a couple more films to be added in the next couple weeks. That ha- They do that every year. And there were a few I think we had sort of heard rumors about that weren't in the lineup. So uh, I feel like there'll be at least one exciting surprise coming.
3: I still have fingers crossed for A Yorgos Lanthimos, one of the two that is supposedly wrapped and done and in in the can that was a real
0: surprise not to be on the lineup right
3: I thought so yeah um, I I don't maybe I don't know what's maybe they're holding it for Venice where the favorite had good luck uh, you know uh, good fortune there so I don't know but um, I thought maybe given that they can does have a history with him with the lobster and killing of a sacred deer that that he would show up with considering there are two potential films from him
4: Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.
0: So now let's go to the conversation that Rebecca and I had with Karina Longworth, the host of the podcast. You must remember this. Her current series is called Erotic 90s. Uh, hopefully you heard her Erotic 80s uh, series that follows this up. And um, you'll hear Rebecca and I talking about Thelma and Louise, which is the subject of this week's episode. Anything you want to add, Rebecca, before we before we get into it? People should go see Thelma and Louise, obviously.
2: Yeah, I think it was, fu- it was fun to rewatch it, but Karina has so many... Um, I don't know. I, her podcast really had some behind-the-scenes stories that I hadn't. I wasn't aware of, and and I thought it was a really uh, interesting conversation. so yeah. she has a lot to share.
0: Yep, same. Let's hear it. So we're now joined by Karina Longworth, returning guest, uh, always valued guest. Um, Erotic 90s has premiered. Uh, it's now in its fourth episode. And uh, Karina, you're here to join us to talk about a real 90s landmark, Thelma and Louise. Uh, thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, we kind of, you know, got the rundown of the season, which was a hugely anticipated event for me and many people. And I feel like. When you hear the term erotic, you don't necessarily automatically jump to Thelma and Louise. Um, and I think the episode really explains why this was an essential uh, pit stop on your erotic 90s tour. But um, do you want to just kind of say in your own words, like, why this movie really belongs in in your span of the 90s in this season?
4: Yeah, I wasn't initially going to include it because, you know, it, de- it feels so different from movies like Indecent Proposal that are the emblems of 90s erotica. But part of my research process is that I, I like to read um, Playboy magazine as a kind of snapshot on just the most middle of the road straight male sexuality of a moment. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we have access to that anymore. But it was really useful in the seventies, <laughs> eighties, and nineties. And um, you know, Playboy magazine was just kind of losing their minds over Thelma and Louise. And I mean, Thelma and Louise is a movie that was a moderate hit. It was certain. It certainly did better. Financially, than I think some people expected it to. But the amount of press coverage it generated was way out of proportion to how much money it generated. And Playboy was just one example of, of people kind of losing their minds about the idea that this movie meant that feminists wanted to shoot men. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was in the middle of this debate over what is rape, what is date rape, how much power should we allow women to have both... Um, in terms of the workplace, which had been a long-term conversation, but also in terms of their relationships, their sexual relationships. Um, and so yeah, it just seemed like I
2: couldn't get from one part of the 90s to another without going through Thelma and Louise. I I'm sorry to David and Richard, but I kind of love that it's the three ladies talking about this movie because your episode really made me think about the way female rage has been captured and criticized in film. And I think you really dig into that in a way that it made me see this film differently.
4: Yeah, I mean, just this idea that I talk about in the episode that. Studios were so not accustomed to marketing a movie that was about two women that they were afraid to put two women together on a poster because people would think it was a quote-unquote lesbian movie, and then that would, you know, just tank the film in the minds of the average filmgoer. So, like, not even just the depiction of rage was unusual, the depiction of female friendship was unusual.
0: Um, yeah, the way that it was not just Playboy magazine. There was like, I think like dueling editorials. It was a cover is an issue of Newsweek that had it on the cover and they had to like do both sides of it. I mean, I think we get the culture all talking about one thing at the same time. But I think that monoculture dominance of the early 90s can't really be replicated now. And I imagine that's something you're encountering a lot in doing your research that like the ability for one movie to get everyone mad about the same thing was pretty intense back then. Right.
4: Yeah, it was Time Magazine that actually did this huge package on on Thelma and Louise, and um, and then but other publications followed suit as well. Like the the LA Weekly was a huge proponent of the movie, and they ran two different glowing reviews: one from a male critic, one from a female critic. Um, but it's had it really felt like a lot of publications were like if we are going to endorse this film we also have to show the other side mm-hmm. um, the other side being you know this sort of skepticism that this sh- movie should even be allowed to exist
0: it's the, the extent to which this movie is anti-male I think seems to be the thing that really freaked people out like Playboy included and I watched this movie for the first time which I'm like embarrassed by but here clearing the air embar- admitting that I watched it for the first time um, and there's they do really take the time to shame various men in this who deserve it like the trucker who keeps harassing them the guy who they shoot obviously but there's a ton of really great compelling male characters in this movie too Brad Pitt really famously in the the cop with Harvey Keitel Did, was it really just that easy to work people up and thinking that a movie is anti-man by having like one or two dumb male characters and i guess is it still that easy like it's it it seems so not anti-male but really got people worked
4: up to that extent Yeah, you know, I think it's—the reason why people got worked up was the ways in which it is quote-unquote anti-male, because it's about women not accepting things that men have, you know, assumed that they would accept. And, you know, kind of on the low end, that's heckling and sexual harassment, you know, catcalls. Um, And on the more severe end, it's rape. And, you know, this was really a moment where there was this question of like, well, we can't do anything nowadays without being accused of rape. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that you'd see in in kind of mainstream popular culture. Um, and so the movie dramatizes that. It dramatizes, you know, an encounter that, you know, maybe a man – the man doesn't think of himself as a rapist. He thinks he's trying to have a little fun, quote-unquote, that, yeah. you know, with this woman who seemed like she was willing and now is changing her mind – um, but to the women, it is obviously rape. You know, but I think one of the reasons why I cited Playboy specifically is because of the tone of of those pieces was very much like, you know, women are trying to take away your power, mm-hmm. um, and you better watch what you better watch what you do sexually because not only do they want to, you know, make you feel small, they will kill you.
2: Mm-hmm. You also dig into sort of the director. Aspect of this film, which I thought was really interesting, because I I didn't know much about that backstory and and Ridley producing and then hiring himself as the director and and it did make me wonder like what would this film have been if it was with a female director and and told through that gaze and I'm I'm curious for you did anyone even bring that up at the time No it was it was yeah. like no Callie Curry did want to direct it as mm-hmm. the screenwriter um,
4: she did want to direct it as well and. The feedback she got both from people who didn't want to make the movie with her and the eventual team that was surrounding her was that, you know, you're already really risking a lot making this film in which these women are so powerful and so violent. We need to kind of balance things out by having a male director. Otherwise, we won't get away with this. Um, And, you know, it's really interesting that people that Ridley Scott – thought of before he hired himself I mean he went to his brother Tony and was like you would be perfect for this and I can't remember exactly what he said but Tony Scott said something like you know I can't do this because I have problems with women yeah. and Ridley Scott's <laughs> response was yeah that is exactly why you should make this film bro um and then he, the other person he approached was the the director who had just made The Accused and so it was like oh the rape guy um yeah. that you know it's just an example of how limited the imagination was I know the series isn't about Ridley Scott but I'm curious like where this fits in with you and
0: his career because his it's been so famously varied he's made a huge range of movies but watching it for the first time especially it just it's so striking to me and so like lived in and like the sense of America and place that I don't think I'd gotten in a lot of his other work did, did you have a sense of where it fits in with with all the rest of his movies Yeah I mean
4: I think that there um you know, he certainly he was trying out a few different things <laughs> over the course of the decade, which basically ends with Gladiator, right? Yeah. Um, and um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that this is chiefly Ridley Scott or chiefly male, but one thing he does bring to it that, you know, maybe a female director had not been associated with at that point was this sense of scale and this sense of it being kind of like a classic western.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and, you know, I just I think the movie is spectacular looking and I don't always think that of Ridley Scott's movies, which sometimes can have, um, you know, this sort of dark kind of action filter on them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the West
0: looks beautiful. Like The, the images from it are iconic even if you haven't seen it or, you know, I think everyone in the culture kind of knows how it ends at this point. But it feels like once you start watching it, you kind of get why all that iconography has really lingered. And for a movie about two women to be iconic
2: in that way, is kind of still almost unheard of. Yeah. And hearing about the ending, did it change the way you thought about the ending of this movie, sort of digging into the research for this and the alternate ending and all of that?
4: yeah um so for people who who don't know the right now the movie ends with film and Louise are cornered by the police. they have nowhere left to go. their car is like you know they can either turn themselves in or drive off a cliff and they choose to drive off a cliff and with the car sort of mid in mid air before it crashes, Scott cuts to a montage of their fun times together <laughs> um sure. set to music and um the original ending was they do crash, and then the only person that you can cut to is Harvey Keitel, who's the, the sort of the chief investigator. And, you know, the decision was made that this is—I think it was too grim. It was also you're giving, like, the last emotional beat to a man who has been hunting our two heroines the whole movie, even if he is more sympathetic than a lot of the other men in the film. Um, and also, Kelly Curry, you know, she said that she didn't want to see them crash— to a bloody death, she wanted the last image of them to be flying.
0: Yeah,
4: um, But, you know, I think the, the current ending is not great. Um, it feels pretty schmaltzy. And part of the way to justify it is to think, like, people were really worried that this movie was going to inspire women to take up arms. And, um, <laughs> you know, as, as crazy as that might seem today, but in the moment— Like having the schmaltzy ending is kind of a way of letting people walk out of the movie crying instead of walking out of the movie filled with rage and and wanting Mm. to buy a gun.
0: It's a way to keep women in their place one last time, even if that's the opposite of what the movie's about. (laughs) Do you guys think this movie would still be shocking in the same way if it came out now? Because I kind of think it would be like it feels so much unlike anything that anyone's making now. And also I think those like the idea of that that level of female empowerment would still really freak people out.
2: I know. I was thinking of comparison. Well, apparently there's a rumored musical, right, that mm-hmm. Amanda Seyfried is mm-hmm. going to be in. That's why she couldn't come to some awards event. Oh, was that the musical she was deep in the process of creating mm. at <laughs> the Golden Globe? Deep Glo- in the process. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of going to the
4: Golden Globe. <laughs> totally so curious that. to see
2: how, if that's real and if that happens. But, <laughs> I, I mean, it made me sort of think of Promising Young Woman a little bit because mm-hmm. of the discussion around that film when it came out. But I, I, I agree with you, Katie. I think if there was if this movie was made now, there would still be this sort of like, just we haven't gone that, we haven't moved that far away from <laughs> this sort of conversation of, are the ladies going to get super mad? Can men do anything these days? So Yeah, if anything, I mean, I feel
4: like things have kind of come full circle. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. the the discourse, you know, got worse and it got better and it's kind <laughs> of swung back and forth as culture does, like a pendulum. Um, and now I think we're at this point where, Um, You know, there are a lot of aggrieved men.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the way we talk about aggrieved men is maybe more explicit now. I mean, we're just getting more of like people shooting strangers in malls. Like it's kind of almost more visible and unavoidable now than it used to be. But like their power hasn't really gone away. And I think now I would be even more if if there was a trucker like heckling me on the road, I think I would not mess with him and you know, think he would have a gun to pull out. I also kind of expected right. that to happen when they pull him over, like that he would just shoot them right back.
4: Um, so are we just in a yeah. worse place now that <laughs> we weren't into anyone? Well, you know, actually, like something that happens sort of culturally a couple years after this is the the Michael Douglas movie Falling Down, um, which is, you know, becomes this prototype of like the angry white male who is not going to, you know, take being cucked anymore, And there was it was on Newsweek, like ran a cover story about, you know, how falling down was basically a documentary (laughs) about actual men of the time who, you know, and it's it's such a crazy story. But it's like they list like all the things that like white men have to be mad about. And it's mostly just people who aren't white. And aren't men? Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, just like how dare these people like encroach on our culture? Um, Yeah. And it's you know, that's I think that was 1992 or early 1993, and 30 years later, you know, certainly those ideas are very present in our culture.
0: Um, To get back to the to the erotic 90s theme for a minute, I mean, there is kind of the the whole Brad Pitt sequence in the movie, and like again, having not seen the movie but kind of heard about this, I mean, his star making thing, like. I got it so immediately why this made him a huge star. And then in your episode, Karina, you revealed that there had been yeah. like a 15-minute sex scene, which just seems very long, um, and it's much <laughs> shorter in actual practice. But do you feel like we were robbed of, of getting more of that, just you know, this you know, Brad Pitt and his unbelievable
4: peak of beauty? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Um, although, first, I would have to say that one of my only problems with Thelma and Louise is I do think it's a little long. Mhm. Um like once they are on their run from the law, it I think it really moves very fast, but getting there takes yeah. a while, so I understand why they <laughs> needed to make cuts. Um and I also think that there is something that like the their relationship is allowed to feel a little a little bit less weighty because we don't actually see her like have a big orgasm. Mm. You know, they just have these conversations about like how it's like the only good sex she's ever had mm-hmm. um, and but then you know immediately after that she realizes he's betrayed her and stolen all their money yeah. um, and so I think that if you did see her in that moment of vulnerability it's just a harder thing to kind of turn around story wise yeah
0: do you feel robbed Rebecca
2: I mean I wouldn't have complained if there was more <laughs> <laughs> but Karina's convincing me that story wise it's the best decision <laughs>
0: I felt that the extent to which Thelma is kind of to blame for a lot of the mistakes that have happened along the way. Like, I mean, it's, you know, not her fault that she, you know, gets tied up with this terrible guy, but she kind of lets Brad Pitt in her room. She makes some, like, dumb decisions over the course of it. And I like that Louise forgives her in the end, but... I wonder if that story would play differently now because I, and also like and I don't know if you guys have encountered this too, but I grew up on a League of Their Own much more. And so Gina Davis as kind of like the bubblehead thing, I have such a hard time wrapping my head around and she plays mm-hmm. it really convincingly. And, you know, she won her Oscar for the accidental tourist a couple years earlier, but I kind of I'm ready for the last period of the movie Thelma from the Gina Davis that we know now more than the first part.
4: Yeah, I, I agree that I think that she becomes sort of more convincing as the movie gets on goes on. And she's more confident. Um, yeah. And it's such a, a, a massive character change, you know, like you wonder if in the modern note environment, <laughs> if that <laughs> would be allowed. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it is adapted to a musical for sure. I guess I would see that musical. I have a
0: really hard time imagining this as a musical or even on on stage as opposed to having these Western yeah. uh, vistas. But, you know, Stranger Things have become successful. I mean, we're
2: going to see it, Katie.
4: Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Amanda Cyprus put too much work in now. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that seems really scary is the idea of like a rape ballet.
2: Mm, oh, God. No.
4: I'm like, how do you handle that in choreography? Like that dream
0: ballet sequence in Oklahoma. I feel like it was like an attempted rape, but I don't think, I can't remember how it ends now. I have to go back and watch Oklahoma. Um, um, Karina, in the first in the prologue episode for the season, you kind of talk a little bit about being a child uh, in the in this period of the 90s and kind of the incredibly confusing mixed signals. And I'm curious how much of that carries through the season and you know what it was like looking back at this period. It, you've done some 90s stuff on the show before, but this is a really t- intense dive into a time that you remember very well. Um how's that been?
4: Yeah, it's it's wild sometimes. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of these movies I don't understand why I was able to, but I saw all these R-rated movies in the movie theater, usually by myself. Um, wow. I can't remember if I was like saying, you know, walking up to the ticket counter and saying "one for Indecent Proposal, please," <laughs> or you know, if I was buying a ticket for something else and walking in. But I saw them all at City Walk um, <laughs> at Universal Studios. And yeah, I think the hardest episode to write so far has been the one about Madonna. Um, Mm. There's an episode about Body of Evidence and the sex book and the Erotica album. And I think one of the things that was difficult for me was that I was a massive Madonna fan at the time, and she really kind of imprinted an idea of womanhood and sexuality on me at way too young of an age. But because I was so young, I couldn't see Body of Evidence when it came out. I didn't have access to the sex book. Um, And so it was more like these things were in my imagination than mm-hmm. they were actually part of reality. And it's very difficult to kind of take my memories of that time and then do the deep dive and see how everything was being written about and then kind of experience them for myself. Um, So, yeah, it's very different than, you know, writing about the 1940s when it's so far before my lifetime that I I can only kind of look back and not have a personal experience beyond, you know, maybe having seen a movie four or five times over the course of my lifetime.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned in the intro, I think, the arrival of, like, the girl power end of the 90s. And I think that's the part where I'm going to be, like, bracing for and have a, a lot of shit to unpack by the time the <laughs> season ends. Um, so yeah. thank you in advance for helping yeah. us out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, any closing thoughts on Thelma and Louise from anybody? Uh, if you haven't watched it, like me, uh, and it's a dumb thing, go go watch it. It's it's It was even better than I think its very huge reputation had prepared me for, which was really exciting Um, because that doesn't often happen
4: yeah I guess I just since this is an awards podcast I mean we could talk a little bit about like how Kelly Curry won the Oscar and you know
0: well, the fact that Gina Davis and Susan Serena both got Best Actress nominations, which I think is the last time that's happened. And maybe because of them both losing, it's the last time that it happened. Um, but I can't imagine how you would do it. it. would be in some like weird, I guess Susan Serena would probably be bumped down to supporting mm-hmm. today and it would be kind of a fraud. So I'm, I'm glad that they went for it, even if they both lost. Yeah. It. it does feel nice that. The
2: woman who wrote the script won, like mm-hmm. over the yeah. male director that directed the film. You know that feels right to me, so it's good to see that.
4: Yeah, I mean, and I guess this kind of was this era of kind of anointing a new behind-the-scenes star through that award. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you think about like Christopher McQuarrie and um, and Quentin, obviously. Um, yeah. So, but you know, the, I think with Callie Curry, it you know she almost had a little bit of like the best actress curse where, you know, sort of future directorial projects didn't, she didn't really have like the most um, impressive career in terms of stuff that got made. Although I really like the film Something to Talk About.
0: Oh, yeah. Maybe if I'm going to get into it, I guess, in a different 90s uh, miniseries. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even Emerald Fennell talking about Promising Young Woman like that best original screenplay Oscar really does say like you are a person who we're going to be paying attention to. Yeah. Um, also, I think it's the first of Ridley Scott's two best director nominations where he didn't also get a best picture nomination, which is a, um, a strange track record. Um, he still doesn't have an Oscar, which is crazy. I guess Napoleon's coming this year. This could be the year.
2: Yeah, this could be it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Create uh, anything else you want to tease about what's to come uh, on Erotic 90s? It's, a, I think, a 12-episode season, so uh, there's a lot ahead.
4: There's actually 14 episodes, and then we're going to do um, a brief summer hiatus and come back with seven more in the fall. Oh, my um, God. And so, so Because there's so much going on in 91, 92, 93, the last episode before the hiatus is um, Showgirls. So Ooh, we get to basically wow. halfway through the decade, through 14 episodes, and then the, you know, wrap up the 90s in the fall.
0: You have to take a hiatus after showgirls. Yeah. There's yeah. like too much. Too <laughs> it's much true. Text. It really <laughs> is true. <laughs> um, well, thanks for coming to talk to us about it and thank you for another season of your show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That is it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, find us at VF.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. Email us at littlegoldmen at VF.com. Or find us on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David.
1: David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford.
0: Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for what will happen when Richard and Rebecca make it to
2: Cannes goes to Rebecca Ford. A nice messy reunion.